top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. We have a busy episode today. We will start things off with my colleague Jim Ward and part of his conversation with Emma Tiedemann the play-by-play radio broadcaster for the Portland Sea Dogs, the AA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox. It's interesting to hear the work Emma put in to become a success in such a male-dominated field. After that, I will go in-depth into an audio clip from Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Palmer, and I will close out the show with the first part of my interview with Professor William E. Watson from Immaculata University in Malvern, Pennsylvania. Watson runs the Duffy's Cut Project, which has done a lot for the memory of some 19th century Irish immigrants who met an awful fate. Right now, Jim Ward will get things started. Take it away, Jim. It's our pleasure to welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, Emma Tiedemann. And Emma, thanks so much for doing this. Of course, anytime. And in full disclosure, I was recently brought on by the Sea Dogs by yourself to produce and do board hopping for you, which was a lot of fun. And it was a fun season this year for you guys. Yeah, it really was. You know, it came up a little bit short, uh, not making the playoffs, but all in all, it was great to have baseball back in Portland after not having a season in 2020. For you, your road starts way, way back in Texas. Tell the folks a little bit about your growing up in Texas and what it was like growing up as a little girl and how you got involved into sports and baseball. Well, I grew up playing every sport under the sun. um, And I was just a really active kid. I mean, in in, in true Texas fashion, I was playing football with the boys at recess and, um, (laughs) you know, hit my growth spurt pretty early. So I was a pretty easy pass into the end zone because I was taller than everyone, um, including the boys in my class. So um, I just love sports from an early age. And um, I initially wanted to be a veterinarian. I loved animals. Animals. And then when I uh, was in high school, I realized that, you know, I'm really bad at science and I'm really bad at math, which are two key components to being in any sort of medical or veterinary field. And so luckily around that time, my grandfather, who was a broadcaster, he was um, helping his students at the University of Texas call, it was basketball at the time. And I would go with him just to keep score, just to be around sports and everything still through high school when I had an off day for my own high school basketball schedule. Um, And he had an open headset one day and asked if I wanted to try it out. And I did. It was a women's basketball game and I loved it. Um, He let me talk as much or as little as I wanted to. I was really shy, uh, but it helped the fact that you know, when you're calling play by play, you're not at least on radio, you're not in front of a camera, you're not in front of a lot of people. It's just you and your headset and what's unfolding in front of you. And I absolutely loved it. So ever since then, I was 15 years old. I've been pursuing uh, sports broadcasting. I went to the University of Missouri and then it all changed and kind of pivoted towards baseball when I went to Alaska um, and spent a summer there working the grind of day in, day out, getting on the bus, ending up in a new city at the end of the night and calling three more games and then packing it up and taking the show to another city. And I I, I fell in love with it. So ever since 2014, I've been working in uh, primarily baseball with some 
off season um, jobs on the side, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the short version of a very long story. <laughs> University of Missouri radio KCOU. What was it like walking into that station for the first time? Was it, were you like overwhelmed or did you say, Oh man, this is it. This is now I'm going to get a taste of real radio. Yeah, it was, it was exactly that. I was ecstatic. They had actually just uh, moved their studio from an older, you know, building that I think everyone envisions college radio stations to be in like the basement of a building into the brand new student center. And so we had all new equipment. It was incredible. And so it was cool to walk in and see the different studios and see the equipment. And then just to be surrounded by another, you know, a bunch of sports nerds like myself who just wanted to call play by play. And then on top of all of that, it was awesome because when I was a freshman, we were in the big 12 and that's what I grew up in in Texas was the big 12 and that whole conference. And then the rumor started to fly about Mizzou joining the SEC. And so then my sophomore, junior and senior year, I got to call SEC games after that and to be a part of that football atmosphere and everything. So it was cool for all of us to kind of experience that transition and just be a bunch of college students in the SEC. And of course you graduated with a bachelor's degree uh, in secondary education and a minor in history. And yet that's a kind of a weird combination to take into sports. But I mean, what, were you thinking that if, if you don't get it going in sports, at least you have something to fall back on? Were you looking to be a teacher or something at that point? Yeah. So after I was in the journalism school at Mizzou, which is obviously very competitive and everything, the best in the country. Um, but then after your first two years, you have to pick a track. And I wasn't drawn to anchoring or reporting or any of those types of things. I wanted to do play-by-play -play and there wasn't a specific track for play-by-play. -play. Um, and I knew that, you know, my passion wasn't behind going out and shooting a story, coming back and editing it for a TV broadcast. My passion was, you know, radio and play-by-play. -play. So I decided that it is a very, very competitive field in play-by-play -play, and I was very realistic about it. And I needed to have a decent fallback in case you know, either it didn't work out or I wanted to take a year off. I could be a teacher, I could be a coach. Um, and then the the history thing, I just happened to take a lot of history classes. And so my advisor was like, oh, congrats, you also have a minor. Um, and so it just kind of worked out um, that I was able to still get a degree. But then during that entire time, I was still broadcasting at least once or twice a week. So it, it all worked out in the end. <laughs> and graduation came. And then next thing you know, your first professional job came up in Alaska at the Alaskan Baseball League. And we've heard a lot of stories from a couple of kids uh, that have gone up and experienced that. And it is an experience to go up to Alaska in the summer because the nights, it's still like sunshine in the middle of the night. What was it like for you to, to go up there and how did that experience come to be? Um, so when I was coming to the end of my junior year, I was realizing that I kind of wanted to do what maybe possibly work for a network and wanted to call every sport year round, that whole thing. And I realized that baseball was my weakest sport play-by-play -play wise and I needed to, the most work with it. So I had heard about leagues like the Cape um, obviously. And so I figured if I can go and call a full season of baseball, call a game every night, I should get better by the end of the season um, and, and help kind of my experience in that regard. So I Googled summer collegiate leagues in the US. Wikipedia at the, at the time had a whole master list of all of them and so I went through each league's website, emailed every GM I could find with my resume and tape and said, this is who I am. I was wondering if you had any openings and only two responded to me. Um, one was in Oregon and the one was in Alaska. And so the Alaska thing was great. I mean, they paid for my trip out there. They set me up with a host family and gave me a car. It was unpaid, uh, but 
I was like, you know, when am I ever going to go to Alaska? So um, <laughs> I packed up and flew out there and had my first like, oh crap moment when we were landing in Anchorage and flying over the largest mountains I've ever seen, still covered in snow, by the way. And, and it was 11 o'clock at night. It's what, 10 a.m. right or 11 a.m. right now in Portland. And it's as bright as it was right now in Portland that it was in Alaska at 11 o'clock at night when I landed. So it was pretty surreal, but the fans and the community and the organization was phenomenal. Uh, we had a ton of talent on that team as well, which made it a lot, uh, a lot more fun to call because we went to a championship. Um, but it was great. It made me fall in love with working in baseball as much as the sport itself. What was the biggest thing you took away from that first year uh, that you didn't expect? Or was there some surprises along the way? I didn't expect to really have as good as a relationship with our manager as I did. And it was more of a, he would watch the games back every night, you know, watching his, his players and stuff, but he would also listen to the broadcast. So he would actually tell me little things because he was an ex player, obviously, and little um, like phrases and stuff that I would say, he's like, actually let's phrase it. You should phrase it like this because of this reason and, and everything like that. So that was a, a, a really nice surprise. And it, it really definitely helped me and it made me more comfortable now going to talk to any manager that I work with, in the future, just knowing that, you know, they want the game of baseball to sound great also as much as you want your broadcast to sound great. And so um, it's, it definitely made me more comfortable going and picking the brains of, of every manager I've worked with ever since. Thanks, Jim. I'm Rick Becker, and this is the Irish Baseball Podcast. We are a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. You can visit us at irishbaseball.org, where you can also catch the interview show, The Crack in the Bat on Irish Baseball TV. Our host, Sean Clancy, taps into his vast Rolodex of baseball contacts to talk baseball with some absolute legends. Recently, Sean talked with Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Palmer, who played all 19 seasons of his career with the Baltimore Orioles. In this audio cut, Palmer talks about the obstacles the Orioles will have moving forward following a 52-110 and 110 record in 2021. You play in the American League East. You know that the Red Sox and the Yankees are going to outspend you. You know now with Rogers' communication that the Blue Jays with a great young bevy of young talent. Uh, you know, they got what Ray Yu for $80 million for four years. Uh, you know, they went out and got, uh, you know, uh, Barrios from uh, Minnesota. He's got one more year. So, you know, everybody's going to outspend you. And then, you know, Tampa Bay who won 100 games for the first time uh, and just got beat by the Red Sox. You know, uh, they're going to outthink it. So it's a tough division. Cedric Mullins, first 30, 30 player in the history of the Orioles. And the Orioles had a lot of great players. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, uh, Austin Hayes can play the outfield, had a really nice year, hit over 20 home runs. You know, Urias is just a you know fringe player. You know, Mancini came back from colon cancer. You know, maybe didn't have the year he had, what, back in 2019 when he had 35 home runs, but had a nice year. So they have some good young players pitching. It's very tough to pitch in Camden Yards. And they don't, you know, John Means is the real deal. He's a really good pitcher, but they need some arms. So it's going to take a while. That was Jim Palmer on the crack in the bat on Irish baseball TV. I'm Rick Becker. Having had the chance to see the Orioles in person a number of times in 2021, I think Palmer made some great points. Yes, there are some bright spots on the roster. Even just watching the all-star game festivities in Colorado, you could see that team has talent. First baseman Trey Mancini, who played his college ball at Notre Dame, was impressive in the home run derby, and he ended up winning the American League Comeback Player of the Year after returning from colon cancer. 
Center fielder Cedric Mullins ended up getting the start for the American League in the All-Star game because the Angels' Mike Trout was injured. Mullins hit 291 with 30 home runs, 30 stolen bases, and an OPS of 878. On the mound, Southpaw John Means was solid for Baltimore with a 6-9 and record that probably reflected the offense's struggles more than his abilities and a 3.62 ERA in 26 starts. It's just hard to see a scenario in which the Orioles are able to rebuild and compete in that monster division. The full conversation with Jim Palmer can be found on the Crack in the Bat on Irish Baseball TV. You can watch all of those episodes at irishbaseball.org. Now, I would like to wrap up today's episode with the first part of my talk with William E. Watson, founder of the Duffy's Cut Project. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. So first of all, I just want to start at the very most basic level about Duffy's Cut and what is it and what is the significance in Irish American history? Okay, Rick. Yeah, Duffy's Cut is a location and an event. The location is mile 59 of the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad in Malvern, which is 22.3 miles outside of Philly on the Amtrak uh, calculations of the miles. The miles in the original rail line in Pennsylvania went west to east instead of east to west. So it's uh, 59 miles outside of Columbia on the Susquehanna and 22.3 miles outside of Philly. And uh, it is the site of a mass grave of Irish railroad workers, immigrants from Donegal, Tyrone, and Derry, who died in 1832 while building Pennsylvania's pioneering railroad. So getting back to some of those basic questions, how was the grave discovered? The story about Duffy's Cut was um, covered up by railroaders in um, a more leadership position because the death of 57 railroaders at any one time and place is bad publicity in terms of trying to recruit new workers in. The railroad here was very heavily dependent on Irish immigrant labor uh, following the British custom uh, for both railroads and canals. And a story like this would have been bad news, whether it was a natural disaster or not. And in this case, uh, the not part of that is is really kind of critical because we find later that the uh, number of the victims at Duffy's Cut were not going to have died of uh, cholera, but of violence. But so how this story came to us is the the unlikely uh, survival of the contextual evidence in my family. Um, My grandfather was uh, Joseph Trippesen, Tripiciano originally took the O off. He was a Sicilian immigrant. I'm Irish as well uh, as uh, Sicilian and Scottish. So, um, you know, I'm a bagpiper and a member of the Friendly Sons and a member of the AOH. But my grandfather was secretary to Martin Clement, who uh, in 1909 was the assistant supervisor of the Pennsylvania Railroad out here in Paoli and was actually living on this campus with the uh, Doyle Donahue family. And um, George Donahue, the, uh, the third, uh, that would have been the grandson of the guy who lived here before the land was sold to the IHMs and Immaculata was made out of it, recalled having seen Clement here uh, when he was a kid. Clement uh, later went on in Philly to become the president of the, of the Pennsylvania Railroad. All along the way, had an interest in the story of Duffy's Cut. He built a, a stone monument that is still there at the site uh, in 1909. And... Um, assembled a file of all the existing documents that he could find on it. But when he became president of the railroad, kept it secret. And and a lot of that would have had to do with the um, unsavory aspects that he would have known about that were not included in the file, i.e. the murders of some of these guys during 
a cholera epidemic in the midst of a national panic when cholera took about 150,000 lives in the United States and many, many more, or about 10,000 lives, excuse me, in the U.S. and about 150,000 worldwide. Now, that's a minimum, I have to say, because in our area, the number was undercounted by at least uh, 100 or 200 from other um, uh, railroad sites like Duffy's Cut, where people died and were buried in mass graves, like at Duffy's Cut, and whose um, uh, victims were never accounted for in the official tallies of deaths. They were just uh, very expendable, 25 cents a day right off the boat Irishmen who didn't amount to anything within the system, except for the fact that they were cheap labor. The evidence was in this file kept by Clement in Pennsylvania Railroad until the railroad went under in the 1960s. It merged with the New York Central and eventually uh, collapsed. But my grandfather had been the last director of personnel after serving as secretary to Martin Clement and a couple of other executive uh, positions. And so he was allowed to go in and take out of the vault anything that he thought he might uh, have an interest in, because he had been a kind of unofficial historian for the railroad. And he took this file in addition to other things. Yeah, so the Freeman's auction catalog that we've got from the sale of the Pennsylvania Railroad uh, documents and, and art and so on does not include that file because my grandfather took it out of the, uh, out of the vaults. And without that, we never would have been able to find out anything about the actual story of Duffy's Cut. Now, I've got to say that there's a, an unconventional way that I got involved in that. It has to do with a ghost story that I never had any experiences like before or since, but in the year 2000, uh, my buddy Tom Connor and I were coming back from a backpack gig in Lancaster, and he um, came to my house in Delaware County all the way from Jersey, and we went out to Lancaster. We had to make a rest stop on the way back. And he looked out the window uh, you know, around 10 o'clock at night, made a rest stop here in, in the building that I'm in right now below my office. And he said, Billy, what am I looking at? And we looked out the window. We saw these three shining neon-like shapes on the lawn right in front of the men's room, in front of the faculty center. And I don't know what the hell they were, but then they vanished. I didn't know what the hell happened. He didn't know what the hell happened. We went out and looked. There was nothing there. No one knew we were there. It had them in a special effect from Hollywood to produce that kind of uh, shimmering uh, aspect. And it wasn't until two years later that my brother pulled out this file that our grandfather had taken and that um, had a story almost identical to that that happened in 1832 of a man walking along the tracks and saw the same thing in September of 1832, a month after the men died down at the site. And so his was the first ghost story associated with Duffy's Cut. It certainly was not the last. When I saw that file, my eyes bugged out and I said, my God, I think I know what we saw. And I generally discount, you know, ghost stories, you know, when you see it on TV, you know, you just don't have any way of knowing whether that stuff's true. I know this is true because I saw it and he saw it, but that's what started this. I saw the file, my brother's possession, and I said, well, we've got to do something about this. Uh, certainly it's a, it's a piece of local hidden history near Immaculata out here in Chester County. More than anything else, it's a piece of Irish history. And, you know, it's the first railroad that these guys uh, were building in the history of Pennsylvania, the second in North America. So it has a historical significance. So while you were researching the men at Duffy's Cut, what did you find out about their day-to-day -day life? Before anything super nefarious happened to them, what was it like on that basic Irish immigrant story for these men who I believe most of them were all single. They didn't come 
with families. That's why it was so hard for people to keep track of them because they basically just came by themselves. That's a very common Irish immigrant story. And if you could elaborate on that a little. Yeah, well, these guys, um, we know what ship they came over on because the railroad file indicated when they arrived. And in the summer of 1832, there's one single ship that these guys could have come over on as common laborers. That's the John Stamp. And so we know what counties they came from, Donegal, Tyrone, and Derry uh, in, the, uh, in, in Ulster, in the northern part of, uh, of the island. And um, they were uh, single. They were average age of 22. Um, they would have been very destitute. Uh, we, we know what they brought with them. Uh, so on the ship manifest, uh, some of them had literally nothing at all. And the decision to get on board that ship probably would have been in an instant. Let me get the hell out of here. Because at that time in Ireland, although the Irish had the vote in 1829, it meant nothing economically until the 1880s, until the time of uh, Charles Stuart Parnell and the uh, Land League, you know, they were they were basically excluded from any kind of money economy on the shores of Ireland. Uh, the the uh, place where laborers would have been working for the most part would have been on farms for absentee landlords for the privileges of having a little tiny parcel of land where they can grow their own food, their own potatoes. So they were excluded from a money economy in their home country. The, the promise of making uh, money for the first time in their lives is the the sole reason why they would have decided to board the ship John Stamp sailing from Derry in April of 1832 for the shores of the New World. Uh, the Pennsylvania uh, industrial system at that time was clamoring for cheap labor, railroads and canals, and um, the Philadelphia and Columbia, for which these guys signed up, uh, was the first uh, railroad in Pennsylvania, the second in North America. So they came from a very poor background, no opportunity to participate in a money economy in their home country, and that promises of making money in the new world would have been uh, an enormous appeal to them. In our next episode, Professor Watson will tell us more about how these men died and the efforts he put forth to get as many of them as possible a proper burial. For my colleague Jim Ward and the Tiedemann play-by-play voice for the Portland Sea Dogs and Immaculata University Professor William E. Watson, I'm Rick Becker, and this has been episode 23 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. You've been listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org. And remember, there's no place like home.